right, good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We, um, we are glad that you're here to join us as uh, we gather around God's Word. Uh, we sing His praises and we recognize um, the grace of our God in our salvation, in, uh, in our lives, in everything good and excellent that comes into us. Um, we recognize it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Today we continue in our study of the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And to kind of remind you as uh, to reset um, where we have come, we, we started Romans about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. All right, we'll stop there, right? We started Romans a while ago, and as we have been marching through Romans, we said that you could divide Romans into two main segments. Chapters 1 through 11 is really the gospel explained. It's the explanation of what it means for us to be saved by or through faith, by grace, in Christ, all of it alone. Not with an addition of some liturgy, not through the process of something that the church offers, not because of something that we add to ourselves or that we earn or that we become in order that we might be more worthy of the recipients of God's grace, but the exact opposite. Despite ourselves, God has graced us with salvation, forgiveness, and life. That's the gospel explained, 11 chapters masterfully done. And then now we are here in chapter 12 and towards uh, the end of this book. This is the gospel applied. Is the gospel applied to the life of one that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? So if you think about it that way, it's the, the, the theology or maybe the doxology, the reasons why we worship our God and who our God is and what he has done. And then it's, it's how do you live that out? It's the praxis. It's the application. It's what the Christian life looks like. And so all of this flows out of the gospel. And so this morning, our message is live or love, live, love like a Christian. It is under the greater rubric of live like a Christian. But today it's about loving like a Christian. And, And you'll say, if you look at our verses, verses 14 through 16, you might think to yourself, well, there's nothing mentioned about love. And it's because the context will begin a little bit earlier I'll read from verse 9 so that we get the, 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 the greater context of this entire segment and how we are to conduct ourselves as those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, not because we deserve it, but because God is that good to us. I'll read from Romans twelve nine all the way to verse 16, even though we'll be unpacking verses 14 through 16 this morning. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's uh, open our time in a word of prayer. 
Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you to look to your word now, we ask for your grace, a grace that will enable us, Lord, to see what Scripture says and to hear it and how it might apply to our particular circumstance in life. Lord, I imagine that there are some that are listening that aren't sure about this whole gospel, about who Christ is and what all this stuff is about. We pray for their hearts that you might open them to the truth of your word and to the power and the the transformation that comes from trusting in Christ alone. For those of us, Lord, that have walked with Christ, that have claimed the name of Jesus Christ unto our, our, our salvation, we pray for us that we would give ourselves over to obedience to your scriptures, that we might understand that the Christian love, the kind of love that Christ exhibited for us, that should be lived out in our own lives is so different from what the world expects and what the world demands. Help us to love like Jesus Christ. Help us to love like good Christians. And Lord, as we look to the scriptures now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable learning and allow us to grow in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read the larger context starting in verse 9 because you saw in verse 9 and 10, let love be genuine. That, that's the umbrella statement of this entire section. Um, earlier, it was talking about our circumstance and how to deal with things that are difficult, that can be challenging. But here, verses 14 through 16 is really about dealing with each other, with people about our human relationships. And in the midst of that, if we take that umbrella statement, let love be sincere or be genuine or without hypocrisy, if we begin with that, then we're talking about this as the key, love as the key to how to conduct ourselves, whether it's with persecutors. Let me kind of forgot. We got to do both of these things at the same time, right? Whether it's with persecutors and trying to exercise a forgiving love, Um, whether it's with those that are joyful or those that are weeping and demonstrating a Christian um, empathetic love, right? Or whether it's with with those that um, are less than us, or at least in our thinking might be less than us, those that might be forgotten by society or church, that those demand our humble love because, again, that is what love is like. That's what Christian love is like. Can I remind you guys that, um, um, that Jesus himself said that this would be the key to how to know that someone, a, a key marker for how to know that someone is a genuine believer, right? How will they know you are my disciples? They will know you are my disciples by what? By your love. So if that's, if that's not the major um, you know, tenor of your life. It's not the, if that's not the, the primary chord, right, that kind of guides you, and you do so many other things, that's fantastic. But if love does not drive your relationships, and I'm not just talking about kind of general love, I'm talking about a particularly Christian love, the kind of love that, that we saw earlier in verse 10, that loves one another with a brotherly affection. In verse 9, is the kind of love that is genuine, yes. And the first thing he says about genuine love is that it abhors what is evil, holds fast to what is good. What does he mean by that? That whatever God defines as good, that's what we care about. That's what drives our love. Not just what I want. I don't know how many people that, that in, in, in deep 
regret and sorrow have abandoned faith because of what they want. You, you'd, you'd be shocked, right, by the decent people that were once members of this church that would say something like, yeah, but I need this to be happy. Whether it's this divorce, whether it's this, this, this evil relationship or this, this you know, sinful habit or, or, or addiction. I just need this to be happy. And on that basis, they will abandon Christ. That is not love that abhors evil and holds fast to what is good, right? So love is being defined here in each of these, these categories. To rejoice, to, to, to bear through difficulties, to pray constantly, to care for one another. So that by the time we arrive in verse 14, it is addressing now even those that may persecute us. Radically forgiving love. Look at verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So let's talk first about what it means that there are persecutors, right? Because there are some of us um, who call ourselves Christians who feel like we're always persecuted. Persecuted by the McDonald's guy because they got my order wrong. I'm persecuted by my boss because my boss wants me to come in on time, right? I'm persecuted by my elders and my pastors because they keep saying, hey, listen, you know, come to church, um, come to church on time. Come to church on time and meet somebody. It's like, why are they telling me what to do, right? We think that we're being persecuted, and it's true. There, there are sinful reasons why some that we might feel persecuted, and it might be because of our own sinfulness. It might be because of our own hypocrisy. It might be because of a lot of the things that we do wrong. But here, I think we're dealing with persecution as Scripture defines persecution. The term that is used here in verse 14 for persecutors, the verbal form of that, those who persecute, literally means to harass. So understand this. It's not, it's not immediate and, uh, and exclusively physical violence that we are afraid of in persecution. That is certainly the ultimate form, the final form of persecution. But persecution, even in Scripture, as the Lord speaks about it, and as um, the other writers of Scripture speak about persecution, it is to be expected, and it comes in various forms. That is to be expected is spoken even by Jesus in John 15. He says, in John fifteen twenty, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you associate with me, you should know that persecution is not just likely, but will come. The master is treated a certain way. His servants will be treated the same way. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes the same. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in life, in, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. See, I wish it would say that some of those, right, who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Right? Very, very few of those like 0.01%. No, this is all of us, if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we'll be persecuted. But this doesn't mean that someone's going to beat us up every day. No. No. When Jesus talks about persecution, he says in Matthew five eleven, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There is verbal false accusations. There will be reviling of you. They'll be making fun of you on account of the name of Jesus Christ. That is the kind of persecution that happens regularly, always, and throughout all the ages. Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. See, you know, in both of those passages, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, you're going to get killed. In other passages, he does. That he does say that there may be a time where you have to bear your cross, literally. But here, he's saying that persecution is a little bit broader. It includes those that speak against you, against your faith, against your character, against all those things that you delight in because you delight in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 says, And we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. So persecution is something that, that I think the Christian is supposed to anticipate. Young believer, if you've come to faith recently, I'm, I'm sorry, this might sound like bad news. But... but certainly the gospel is worth it. Certainly eternal life is worth it. And certainly the Lord does not give you more than you can handle. But in the midst of all of that, the important thing is we have one another. We'll get to that because I think that's why verse 16 kind of caps off this entire section that we are here for one another. But here we're talking about persecutors and persecution and it's saying that we should expect that and as we expect it, how should we respond? Well, the normal response, oops, the normal response would be cursing. Now, this is not just, this is not speaking expletives, right? I know, I know we use the word curse, right? For um, saying, you know, expletives, saying things that we shouldn't be saying in, uh, in, in company, right? Um, but cursing is literally to invoke right? Harm upon somebody. A genuine curse would be something like, you know, in the name of Ali Kazam, you know, I, I curse you, let me, you know, a thousand fleas infest your pits or something. You know, like that's, it's like wishing evil or bad upon somebody. That, that's what we mean by cursing somebody. It's literally the opposite. It's verbal. It's a verbal kind of invocation or calling down of something bad upon you. It's the opposite exactly of a blessing. And the response of the Christian, even to those that persecute us, is supposed to be the exact opposite of a cursing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. See, the second part, Paul is very mindful of the fact that that's what we would naturally do. You know, the guy does something bad to you or he calls you names or he, he thinks badly of, of, of Christians or of you for wasting your Sundays, going to church or whatever it is. And you might feel like, Lord, just bring down fire. Bring fire. But love requires and, and demands of us. The gospel demands of us. Our transformed, our transformed fixation with God's grace and his forgiving love towards our, us demands of us to seek a blessing for even those that persecute us instead of seeking their damnation. 
This is really radical. This is really unusual. This is not the way that other people would train you to kind of uh, conduct yourselves. You, you should protect yourself. You should speak out for yourself. All right, so we're talking about speaking well of your enemies, but not just speaking well towards them. It means praying for their forgiveness and seeking God to bless them. To know that someone is particularly antagonistic towards you because of faith and to ask the Lord to be gracious and open that person's heart. You can see why this would be particularly um, sensitive and significant to Paul. He was a persecutor of the faith. He was literally in this category of those who persecute you. And he's saying, man, if I could rewind that clock, I'm thankful that some of you guys would still look at someone like me and would want me to come to faith. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I like what Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, how he puts it. He gives us four, four parts of what it means to, to, to live out this radically forgiving love. He says, first of all, so this, first of all, I don't know why that's my Puritan voice, it is to speak well of them. He says, so speak well of them. Secondly, he says, speak respectfully to them. These are your persecutors now. Thirdly, he says, desire good for them in their hearts. And finally, he says, if you desire good for them in their hearts, then we must offer that desire in prayer to God. Bless those who persecute you. Do you get that? And this, again, this is, this is weird. This is radical. This is more than I would, I would think that we are required to do. I mean, isn't it enough that we don't curse them? Right? The guy is like making fun of us. Okay, I'm not going to punch him. No, it's okay, so that's I'm acting Christian already, right? I'm, I'm not going to, you know, curse him. I'm not going to ask God to kill him right now and send him to eternal damnation. I'm not going to ask that. So if I just walk away, isn't that not significant enough? And here, Christian love is defined as that which is willing to go even a step further to actually seek that they might come to faith in Christ at some moment. This is radical, right? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is a common theme. And this is a common reality and a hallmark of Christian love. That we are those that will live radically enough to bless those that persecute us. To love in such a way that is forgiving and blessing and not cursing. So radically forgiving one another, that's verse 14. Secondly, verse 15, thoughtfully, I don't know why empathetic, I, I know the word, and I keep wanting to say something emphatic, empathetic love. Thoughtfully, empathetic love. And I wrote this, and I can't even say it, right? Thoughtfully, empathetic love. So take a look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, let's talk first about empathy and the reason why we choose the word empathy instead of sympathy. It is more of, a, um, it's more of the way that we use this word now, right? But we say sympathy for the more general concept of me having compassion for somebody, right? If, I, if I'm sympathetic 
about something that you're going through. That means from a distance, I see your circumstance and I feel bad for you. Oh, that's rough, right? So you tell me, oh man, I lost my job. This is happening, all these different, and I go, oh, and that's not a bad thing. That's good. Human sympathy is a good thing. We use the term empathy to mean that we are, we are not just recognizing that difficult circumstance and um, connecting by having some compassion towards you in that. Empathy means that we are entering into your joy or your sorrow as if it were our own. Empathy is, is me understanding or feeling that emotion alongside you. See, this is the way I would, I would, I would characterize this difference. Um, sympathy means that you tell me something that you're going through, and I feel kind of bad for your circumstances. Empathy is you tell me something that you're going through, and I start just weeping for you because I know exactly, I'm inside, I know exactly what you mean. We tend to be more, um, I almost say empathetic. No, no, that's right, that's right, empathetic. We tend to be more empathetic with those circumstances, those difficulties that we ourselves have walked through. Um, there are times that, that, uh, that when I get to preach and, and I'll preach on something, and as an as illustration, I'll talk about going through cancer, right? And then um, invariably, someone will come up and say, dude, I, I went through cancer, right? And they're not just going, aw, right? Man, I feel bad for you. And, and again, I'm not making fun of the, the sympathy that is a, is a reasonable thing. But there is, there is a closer association. There's a walking in your shoes. There is a me and you. Our lives are the same. We are similar, right? Kind of brotherhood, empathy that happens when you say, dude, I, I totally get what you're saying. Christians are called to love with an empathetic love, not just sympathetic love. We are to be sympathetic, but there, and there are times when all we can offer is sympathy because we don't get it. We're like, dude, I don't know why this is so big to you. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to have pity, compassion, um, encouragement. I'm, I'm trying to connect with you. But there are times, and we are to drive ourselves to try to get to the point of empathy because emotions are part of our human makeup. It's part of our experience because that's what God has created us to be, to be emotional beings. It is part of our image bearing. What do I mean by that? I mean that God himself has created all kinds of interesting life creatures on this planet. But humankind is the most unique in that they bear his image. And when they bear his image, it means that many of the things that we care about, that we feel, that we think about, that we're drawn towards, are a direct result of the fact that that's something like how God experiences things. We are emotional because God is emotional. We, we, We feel because God has the capacity to feel. So, emotions are granted to us because we're image bearers. And so we feel not just because we have all these neurons that fire, that fire away when certain things happen, but because we feel because God feels. He loves. He abhors. He gets angry. And he forgives. And we, are to do, we go through the same things, at least a human version of them, often touched by sin and often sinfully untrustworthy. So the call is not for us to become purely emotional. The call is for us to become empathetic. 
to recognize in someone the emotions that they're going through and to sit with them, to experience that with them. You know, so I talked about, you know, I had cancer, um, liver cancer 13 years ago, right? And um, I remember I announced it to the church because, you know, it's not something you want to spring on, on anybody, but the church needed to know. I, I was the lead pastor of this church, and I wanted the church to know. And in that email, I sent it out. I kind of explained all these things, and I said that I coveted their prayers, you know? And that, uh, that I, and I confessed that, that I was struggling with how to think about, you know, what's going to happen to Kathy, what's going to happen to the kids, right? And, and people cast much sympathy. Some individuals uh, could empathize with that, and I appreciated that. I remember one, and it didn't bother me at the time that much because there was a lot of uh, um, uh, kind responses that were so helpful. But I remember one particular um, former member, she wrote something to the effect of, uh, don't be silly, what's going to happen to your kids? God is sovereign, the kids will be fine. She meant it for good. And, 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 and theologically, she's not wrong, right? I, I'm not the sole cause of good in my, my family's life or in your life. I am not, right? And I don't strive to be. God is the sole source of good in your life. So that part is true. Theologically, that's accurate. But there is something about that that you go, hmm, you know, not, not what I would encourage you to tell somebody who's nervous about passing away. Ah, don't worry. Your wife will be fine. She can get remarried. You know, she's young, <laughs> right? Kids will be fine. You, they don't have to worry about you nagging them all the time, right? Like, that's not really empathetic. The idea is to get inside of the experience and to rejoice with them, to weep with them, to let them know that you care for them because they are image bearers and they are profoundly significant. Even sinners and rebels are divinely significant. God has placed in them the spark of divine attributions. They're image bearers. So we care about every human life. Even that grumpy neighbor that's yelling at your kids to get off the lawn. That neighbor too. Man, when you're ticked off because, you know, um, the guy cut you off on the freeway, instead of beep, 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 you know, how about, and I meant, you know, honk, 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 honk. <laughs> I don't know, you, right? instead, of, instead of cursing, right? Offer a blessing. Rejoicing and weeping. Imagine life without emotions. And rejoicing and weeping, I think, is meant to, to cover the gamut, right? That someone is celebrating and rejoicing, and you were to join in with that rejoicing, to feel that with them, to walk in the shoes with them. And if they are instead weeping, we are to walk in the shadow of that grief with them. That, that is what Christian love looks like, that we engage empathetically with them. So imagine life without emotion. Right? Young ladies, imagine that, that that dream man gets down on one knee and he opens a box and there's a diamond ring in there and he proposes and you're like, okay, meh. Right? No emotion, just like, oh wait, are you asking me to? Okay, all right, let's do it. When, when, do, I, when do I have to show up? Right? Can you imagine that? Or, or can you imagine, right, that, that you're getting married and you announce it to the church, hey, listen, we're engaged, we're getting married. And, you know, your fiancé, she's excited, we're getting married. And you're just like, yeah, come if you can, you know, no big deal, right? Send gifts if you like, that would be helpful. All right, see you guys later, right? Like, just, like, no emotion. What would that look like? Hey, we just had a baby. Yeah, how come it's all pruney looking? <laughs> right? 
Like, you just go on and on and on. Like, you imagine all of the, the life's joys as well as the life's sorrows. Like, someone you, you love that you cared about has passed away or is, is very sick. And you're just like, yeah, what can you do? These things happen. It's weird, right? It is weird. In fact, physically, there is a disease, interestingly enough, that affects your, your nervous system. There can be a, this bacteria that attacks your nerves. And what happens is you lose your sense of touch and pain. Right? So we can, we can liken that physically to spiritually, mentally, emotionally. That's all one product, by the way. Like we tend to, we tend to divide that up too much, right? But, but think of all of this, the internal part of us being human, and compare that to physically. What if our nervous system was kind of messed up? A bacteria infected our nerves to where they would swell. They'd stop working. Then what would happen is we'd be susceptible to injury, paralysis. We'd start to lose some of our digits, meaning our fingers and toes. Our eyebrows would become deformed. Our nose would become deformed. We would possibly go blind. The name of this disease is Hansen's disease. It's also known as leprosy. Leprosy is literally, right, the removal of feelings unto absolute bad health. Well, a non-empathetic Christian love is like that. Our incapacity to rejoice with those that rejoice, to weep with those that weep, looks like spiritual leprosy. It looks like we are so self-consumed. We have so many things that we have going on that we have no time to understand and to love <coughs> as Christ has loved us. And you got to remember that. See, this is all gospel-driven. Christ has loved you with the kind of love that he shouldn't love you. He loved you when you were still a sinner and a rebel. He loved you when you thought everything that was bad was okay and that you were the God of your universe. He loved you when you did not deserve his love. He loved you with a forgiving love. And then he loved you with an empathetic love. It's like he understands what you have gone through. He understands the temptations that you face. He understands and sympathizes. This book of Hebrews, right? He sympathizes with our condition. So if God has loved us like that, we are called similarly to love others like that. <clears throat> I think one of the most interesting uh, verses in Scripture is the shortest in our English text, right? John eleven thirty five. So if you're trying to memorize Scripture, there's a good one to start with. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And some of us are still going to mess it up and go, John eleven thirty five. Jesus cried? Man, oh man, I can't remember my scripture, right? Jesus wept. That's an easy one. But my question is, why? It's weird that he wept. Let me explain why I'm saying it's weird. I'm not calling the Lord weird, right? In John 11, the context of that is he's about to go raise Lazarus. He weeps because, because they have put Lazarus in his tomb and he's been dead for three days. But if you recall earlier, in that narrative, before they come back to Bethany, before Jesus raises Lazarus, he tells them, because a courier has come and said that something has happened to Lazarus, <clears throat> and says, Lord, hurry back, he's really sick. And Jesus tells his disciples, and he remains on for another few days at the location that they're at, and then he tells them that his sickness is for God's glory. He has fallen asleep. 
And they're like, oh, it's falling asleep. Well, that's good. Maybe you need to sleep it off, right? And Jesus meant he's dead. But he says it's for God's glory. So it indicates that he already knew that he was going to go to Bethany. Lazarus is already going to be dead. And as the story unfolds, he is going to raise him from the dead. So my question is, why would he weep just before, literally most minutes before he raises Lazarus from the dead? Right? Because if, if you're following me, if I'm with Jesus and I know exactly what's going to happen, like we got in a time machine and we go, dude, I love this story. I can't wait. Right? And Jesus starts weeping. You're like, wait, what is this, theater? Like, Lord, you, you just, you know, you acting this up? Yeah, oh, me too. Me too. I'll join you. Right? Is that what's going on? No, he's empathizing with the grief of those that have recognized what sin and death brings. There's not a person in this room that should not recognize what sin and death brings. Maybe you're young enough to, that you think that, oh, yeah, I mean, people die eventually. But if you've even been to one funeral, you know that this is the reality unless the Lord returns for every single person in this room. We will all pass this mortal frame, right? So Jesus is empathizing with their pain. He's weeping. And it's not a soft weep, right? It's not a soft cry. Um, the term that is used in John eleven thirty five means to grieve and to cry out in sorrow. He is joining their wailing because this is the experience of separation because of sin and death. And perhaps kind of thrown into that is because he knows that they're going to go through this again. Lazarus, he's going to raise Lazarus, but not into his new resurrected eternal body. Lazarus is going to die physically again, right? I mean, you think it's kind of cool to be Lazarus, but then again, you might think, wait a minute. So I got to go through this twice. Like, you know, I'm okay just going through it once, Lord. The point being that when someone suffers, in particular, a member of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We join in in the chorus of rejoicing we get inside of that. We walk in those shoes. We join in in the dirge of mourning. We get inside of that. We're supportive of that because we get that. See, that's, that's how the Christian love, a redeemed Christian love, is defined. Let me just say one last thing. I liked it because John Chrysostom, um, one of the great orators of the early church, he said that it's possible that Paul brings, right, that Paul brings up the idea of rejoicing with those that rejoice first. He says it's possible that he brings that up first because it's much harder than weeping with those that weep. It's easy for us to get inside of sorrow, right, because we have all felt the depth of that. Much more difficult sometimes to celebrate someone else's boon, their success, or something great happening to them, right? That's the self-centered creatures we are. But the Holy Spirit and Christ's redeeming love has granted us the capacity to love as Christ loves, to radically forgive those that are persecuting us, <clears throat> and to thoughtfully be empathetic to those that are rejoicing and to those that are weeping. Our last uh, point here. <clears throat> 
is a, a unifying humble love. Unifying humble love. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. <clears throat> we'll, we'll stop there for now, right? Oh, okay, well, never, I'll read the rest. It's not that long. Never be wise in your own sight. There, there are three components, I think, to this idea of this love that is humble enough to bring us together. The first is this same-minded harmony, right? A same-minded harmony. Look at that first phrase. Live in harmony with one another. Now, that's the ESV, and if you're looking at NIV, it's the same, live in harmony. If you're looking at your NASB or New King James, it will be a little bit more literal, and the phrase is this, be of the same mind towards one another. That's what I'm saying. It's the same-minded kind of harmony, right? Be of the same mind towards one another. It's literally same-minded. What is it like, or what, what is that calling us to? And I think the ESV, the NIV, and others are trying to, to give us, I think, a very reasonable and excellent translation by saying live in harmony. But so we get inside of that, so we think about that well, we can unpack it by thinking of it this way. There is a like-mindedness amongst those that care for each other, that know each other, that are intimate, and intimate might be the right term for that. Right? Like there's a like-mindedness between a husband and wife when they talk about stuff. They start to finish each other's sentences. They start to use similar mannerisms. You notice that? Families, they have certain mannerisms, certain things that they do. Right? It just kind of happens. And then dating people sometimes, if they've been dating for a long time, they start using similar terminology. Like they start talking alike. There's a like-mindedness, something that is kind of similar that, that, that identifies them with each other. It's not to say that they are identical. In fact, you know, when we looked at a, a few weeks ago, um, the idea of the application of varying gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us in the church, clearly, Scripture, when it talks about the body of Christ, <clears throat> it emphasizes our distinctiveness. We're very different from each other. And that's a blessing. So it's not becoming identical. It's not merely replication that same-mindedness is about. Be mindful of that. Be careful of that. Because we're people that tend to, out of our pride, demand that everyone acts and thinks just like us, dress like me, act like me, vote like me. And all of it is kind of weird, right? Because we are very different. God has created us different. We have varying gifts. We have different things and causes and, and things that move our souls. And that's okay. We're trying to understand one another. What does it mean to be of the same mind? Not to be replicants of each other, but to think about the main purposes of life. The main categories of existence. Uh, the, the, the main direction of everything that God has saved us for, to think about those things in the same way. Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there, but if you don't, then remember it, would you? Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... <clears throat> Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same phrase. By being of the same mind. Listen to the rest of it. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Philippians 2.2 2 really defines for us what it means to be of the same mind. It means, to, it says, be of the same mind, and then it gives us these participles to say, this is how you do that. 
having the same love, love the same things. Right? This, again, it goes back to verse 9. Right? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That's the kind of love that we should have. To love the things that God loves, <clears throat> that we begin to love. We are similar in the things that we love because of the gospel of truth. It means to secondly be in accord with one another. In other words, to think of others as just as significant in our equal and our in our brothers and our sisters in Christ. This is God's family, the redeemed. And according to Jesus, it's it's thicker than blood. You may have family members that don't get you, that don't connect with you, that don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be loving towards them. You are to be gracious towards them. You are to display the gospel towards them in your conduct as well as in your words. But the body of Christ, the redeemed of God, have a connection that goes so much deeper. Because all of eternity, and everything that we live for, and everything that we look forward to in eternity, we share in common. That's what it means to be of the same mind to have one purpose, to have one ambition, to have the same foundation, same-minded harmony, live in harmony with one another. And even the fact that Paul has to encourage us to do that, I think it's the constant kind of backhanded reminder that we'll be constantly tempted to not live in harmony with one another. That discord, even amongst good believers, is very possible. But we need to strive for better. We need to strive for Christ-like love. Live in harmony with one another. The second one under uh, unifying love is a lowly-minded inclusiveness. A lonely-minded inclusiveness. Now listen, as soon as I say inclusive, you know, you might be firing off all these social political constructs. Calm down. Let's just look at the text, all right? Let me use English words because they're good words. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. These are good words. The word for haughty there literally means to think highly of yourself. I mean, it's literally think high thoughts. Do we do that? Dude, I do that. I got to confess to you, man. Sometimes I think, man, I I am kind of stronger than most of you, right? I'm looking around right now, most of you. I think all of you. I would just, I'm I'm just going to say it, man. I'm stronger than all of you guys in the room. Not all at once, right? All individually. All right, because John Jew's not here anymore. Remember, he's, whoo. He's a, he's a Hulk. But right, so, so sometimes I'm like, man, I'm just frustrated. I'm just not push that person down. I'm not sure why that is my kind of go-to, like if I'm like not enjoying this, like I feel like, what should I do? I should push them down because I feel like it would be physically intimidating if I pushed you to the ground because you would know like, oh man, he's stronger than me, right? <laughs> that, that's what I'm thinking. That might be my, like that's my high and, and lofty mindedness in thinking that I am better than you, at least physically, I don't usually think that I'm better than you mentally because I know some of you guys are really smart and I'm not so much, right? But nevertheless, if I was, if I thought that I had more education than you and I'm, I'm tempted to do that theologically and say, dude, you can read your scriptures, right? That's what my heart is yelling at you, right? As I smile and I go, oh, really, right? <laughs> these, are, these are these high and haughty thoughts. These are natural to us because you are good at stuff. Because God has granted you capacities to do things that other people may not be as good as you are in. That's not a wicked thing. But it becomes, um, it becomes unhealthy when we take that high thinking 
And we just associate that with, or we adapt that to how we think about others because we are not to be high, high thoughtful about ourselves. We are not to be haughty and proud and arrogant about ourselves. But make sure you understand this context, especially as it relates to how we associate with others. It says, do not be haughty, thinking yourself so highly, but associate with the lowly. The word for associate is a verb that could mean to be carried away or to carry it off. It means to be grouped together with somebody. In other words, be close enough to those that you think might be lowly, that, that people might take no account of, because you should be connected to them in a way that kind of groups you all together. Don't be high thinking about yourself, but consider your close association, or can we use another term? Fellowship with those that are lowly. It refers to something that is left out, outcast, individuals that, in other, in other words, would be taken of no account. These are the insignificant people of this world. I think it's interesting, too, that when Jesus speaks about this particular term, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, I am gentle and lowly. Same word. Jesus says, I'm that kind of an individual, left out, outcast, that this society would try to cast me away and think of me as not counting. He was often accused of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And I think the idea of being lowly-minded um, um, in terms of our Christian love means that we're willing to associate with, with anyone and everyone, Right? And Jesus was that. He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners. That was the accusation thrown at him often because he cared about others. And we are likewise to, to demonstrate Christ-like examples of love that we don't think that we are above anybody or anything, but that we care for others. I think the illustration of that is in Acts 2 in the early church after Pentecost. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And it doesn't mean everyone sold everything that they had and they just put it out there and everyone grabbed whatever they needed. No, it meant that they just cared for each other. They lived alongside each other. They accepted and embraced one another. There was this Christian inclusiveness that said, wait a minute, you're a Gentile, a pig-eating Gentile. Want to come over? Right? It's like, dude, you're a Roman soldier. You're, you're part of the, the, the group, right, that is oppressing my people. You need a place to stay? You get what I mean? There is something that is so radical and interesting about this idea of I'm not better than you. I'm not greater than you. In fact, I'm not different from you. There's an inclusiveness that's excellent that needs to be gospel-driven into our soul. Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, right? Um, he puts it this way. When you meet people, your only interest should be this. Are they children of God? Are they heirs of eternity? Are they spiritually minded? They are the people to talk to. They are the people with whom you want to mix. And it doesn't matter which social class they come from. They are yours and you are theirs. That's what we mean by this radically lowly, minded inclusiveness it's the kind of love that embraces embraces all kinds of different people and that's okay you know um 
one of the things that used to be a pet peeve of mine when I was a younger man, a younger pastor, was, um, was if people talk a lot. And I've run into, as a pastor you do, and as a Christian you do, as a person you probably do, you run into people that talk a lot. Especially some of our older saints, right? Or our older friends. Um, I have this aunt that I love who will call me and she'll just talk to me about stuff that she talked to me the day before about, right? For about 45 minutes to an hour. And, and, and I'm telling you, as a younger believer, I was like, oh, Auntie, I gotta go. You know, I almost wanted to lie and say, I got, I got, oh, oh, something's happening right now. I, uh, I'm breaking up. <laughs> right? You, you almost want to break away, but as you grow more mature in the things of Christ and the fact that, that I'm that guy, you gotta listen to me for like 50 minutes every Sunday, right? It's not always that interesting to you. I'm sorry, you know? As you grow older into that, you appreciate that person. And I'm okay with that. And I, I think people have mentioned, like, dude, you're crazy patient with that person that talked forever and stuff. And it's like, that's okay, man. That's a, that's a person. That's a, that's a God-created human being. You know, we could delight in them and we can help them. We could say, hey, listen, that's too much. You're probably talking a little too much, right? We could help them, but it doesn't mean that we should ignore them or to think that they are beneath our care and our expectation or, or our demands of love. It is good to appreciate that people are different and to grow in patience towards that. Whether it's your own children, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your coworkers, your boss, whether it's fellow students, whatever it is, right? Your family member. I mean, it is, it is good to grow in the grace of the love of Christ because Christ loved someone like you, someone like me. And that gospel truth it ought to flow out of us for the sake of loving others. And finally, there's a, this kind of Christian love that unifies because it's of the same mind and harmony, lowly-minded inclusiveness, and then, man, I don't know what's going on. I, I just realized, what is, wait, what? What? Well, B can be A, C can be B, <laughs> D can be C, and then C is not supposed to be that. Nevertheless, guarded against self-wisdom. Guarded against self-wisdom. Here's the last one that, that we're going to close off in. It's, an, it's a simple phrase, but I think significant in this context. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. That's a good translation. NASB, Holman Christian Standard, it will say, do not be wise in your own estimation. Um, NIV, a good one, do not be wise in your own opinion. And here in ESV, do not never be wise in your own sight. You, you get what the, the guarding against is, is guard yourself against, stop or never start, right, leaning in on your own wisdom or thinking yourself to be wise. Wise in your own sight is a phrase that is repeated throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It implies that relying on your own wisdom, your self-wisdom, I know what I'm doing. I, I could decide for myself. I have good eyes, right? Wise in your own eyes tends to lead you away from the fear of the Lord and tends to turn you towards evil. That's what Proverbs 3, 7 seems to indicate. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? Same phrase. 
There's more hope for a fool than for him. It implies that if you find yourself, right, saying that the reason why I do this is because this is the way I think about it, and you're relying on yourself, you're self-affirming in your own wisdom, the fool has more hope than you. It implies that that individual is less than a fool. And then earlier in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. There, Paul is saying, don't become wise in your own eyes, but understand the unpacking mystery of Scripture. And not mystery in the weird kind of mystical sense, but mystery in the good sense. That something that has not been previously clarified is being clarified by the New Testament Scriptures. It's saying, let Scripture govern your wisdom. And then there's always that wisdom principle from James, right? How do we know it's genuine wisdom from the Lord? And the first word it says, wisdom from above is first peaceable. You see how that fits back into the context of all of this? To love like a Christian means that you are radically willing to seek a blessing from those, for those that persecute you. It means to to walk like Christ in love is to walk in other people's shoes, to to be empathetic towards them, to rejoice with them, to weep with them, to care about them in their humanity. It means to, to unify with others by being in the same mind, to have the same purposes, to love the things of Christ and seek that harmony with others. It means to be lowly minded about ourselves. So that we are not just tolerant of, but embracing of those that are different or might be forgotten or left out. And it means that we guard against our own self-wisdom of being wise in our own eyes, of thinking that we are right and that ends the discussion, that everyone else is wrong, that if everyone saw things my way, their life would be better, etc. All of that pride and wickedness, that is literally Satan. Isn't that his one thing that he gave to Adam and Eve as the main reason why they should eat of the fruit? It'll make you wise, self-wise, do your own thing. And it's the same thing he's telling each of us every day. Do what you think is right. Don't listen to the counsel of others. Don't worry about what Scripture says. Do what you feel is good. You've got to live for yourself. To your spiritual destruction. Christian love is characterized by this unifying love that is humble, gracious, and is a lot like the love of Christ for us. Love like a Christian. Love like someone redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's how they'll know us, that we are his disciples by our love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace to us today and ask that you would bless um, the preaching of your word the worship, the prayers that have been offered, that these, Lord, would, um, would result in fruit in our lives. I thank you for all those that are here and gathered together with us, that they would be blessed um, to live and to commit themselves to you. Lord, and for those that are struggling in faith or struggling to even find faith, we ask that you would touch their hearts and open their hearts to the reality of the love of God in Christ Jesus, a love that we could never earn or deserve but nevertheless is offered in the forgiveness of sins and in full redemption and righteousness 
because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. We pray to honor him and ask that we would live to honor him. In Jesus' name, amen.